Please turn with me to Isaiah 59. Start in chapter 59 this morning. Isaiah 59 and verse 9. As the song said, uh, though the wrong seems off so strong, you ever watch the news and think, wow, this world is really broken. Uh, Blake and I were talking about that this week as we were thinking through this passage and this sermon. And uh, we thought about all the things that are happening in the news right now. Tsunami in Japan and uh, nuclear radiation spilling into the ocean, spilling out onto the people. Civil war in Libya. Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Drug wars just across our border. Terrorism, not just over there, but even in our own cities. Poverty, poverty in Africa, poverty in America. Bankruptcies, foreclosure, unemployment, political fighting. Environmental disasters, diseases that cannot be cured. Look at the news and you say, wow, um, it seems like things are really dark right now. The specific circumstances in which we live may be a little bit different, but this has kind of been the experience of humanity for all of time. I want you to read with me in Isaiah 59 and notice the description of the people in Isaiah's day. They say, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. We hope for salvation, but it is far from us. Things seem awfully dark, but that was not God's original plan, was it? God created all things and he finished each act of creation. He looked out and he said, it is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. He looked at all that he had made. He said, it is very, very good. The works of my hands are good. Then Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God and in their rebellion, they brought in Sin and suffering and death and disease and chaos and darkness. Frustration. And you look at the history of the world and you go, wow, this, is a, this, this could be viewed as a very dark place. Just read the book of Genesis. If any book should be censored in our public libraries, it's probably Genesis. It's a, it's a pretty racy book. It's not just lying and stealing and cheating and murder, stuff like that. But there are all kinds of immorality that are taking place. And if you want to find dysfunctional families, as we call them now, look at Genesis. Don't model your family like that. Don't let your kids read that book. But fortunately, the final word in Genesis is not chaos. It's not darkness. Instead, God almost immediately steps in and he begins this program of setting all things right again, putting them back to their original order as he had created it. And this is God's plan. To set all things right through his servants. Through men and women that he will select to serve him. God chooses to set all things right through his servants. Word for servant in Hebrew is ebed. It's a very common word, really common. It occurs about 800 times in the Old Testament and New Testament. And we think of the word servant. We don't necessarily have positive connotations. We don't want to be servants. But if you look at the Old Testament perspective, if you're serving the right person... To be a servant is a wonderful thing. I I personally don't 
immediately say, yeah, who can I serve? Whose servant can I be? I remember my first job was uh, at Kmart. Kmart doesn't uh, exist here in this town any longer. It used to be over by 2818. It was right next to the Piggly Wiggly, which I think what marketing team came up with the name Piggly Wiggly for a grocery store. But Regardless, it doesn't have anything to do with my story. It was right next to the Piggly Wiggly. I was at Kmart, and, and my job was in the garden center, but because I was 16 years old, I got pulled off onto all kinds of different things that I had to do. And, and one of those jobs that always went to the low person on the staff was to take out the trash at the end of the day. And I, was, I hated that job because all of the trash collected from a Kmart at the end of the day is really nasty. I mean, really, really nasty. Every time I got that duty, I remember hauling it out there and nearly throwing up. Every time, it was gross. It was disgusting. It was terrible. I hated being treated like a servant. I was 16 years old. That's rough on a 16-year-old male ego to be reminded, you're the low person around here. I don't want to serve anybody. We think a servant, we don't think of something positive. But in the Bible, if you are a servant of a good master, that's a great thing. Particularly if you can be a servant of the Lord. One commentator on the Old Testament wrote this. He said, the one who was chosen as the servant of God always had a good master. To be the servant of Yahweh was an honor, raising the status of the person involved. It did not mean degradation, but exaltation in Yahweh's service. It was a great thing to serve the Lord because from a biblical perspective, every single one of us will serve someone. We can serve ourselves and our own lusts and desires and consequently serve sin and death and Satan. Or we can serve the Lord and share in his glory and honor and exaltation. And those really are the only choices from a biblical perspective that we have. It's just which master we choose to serve. And so to serve the Lord is a really wonderful thing. And this is God's plan. That he will choose men and women to serve him and through them all things will be set right. You know the story of the Old Testament goes like this. God chose a man. He chose Abraham. He chose his wife, Sarah. And miraculously, he made a family out of them. From that family, he built a nation. And that nation, Israel, was called by God to serve him and set all things right. If you kind of read over the surface of the Old Testament, you might get the impression that God only loves Israel. But the fact is, God loves Israel so that... He can set all things right among all peoples. He blesses Israel so that Israel can be a blessing to all nations. He chooses Israel to be his servant so that they can serve all of humanity and elevate all humanity back into a right relationship with God. So in Leviticus chapter 25, it says this, for the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And last week, Blake talked about this uh, component of redemption, God purchasing a people for himself, paying the price for them to be reconciled to him. That's what he did for the nation of Israel so that they could be a unique people standing as a light amongst all peoples and drawing people back into a relationship with God. Book of Exodus, he commissions them and he says this, now then, if you will indeed Obey my voice, keep my covenant. Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, God's intention wasn't just that the tribe of Levi and from Aaron's family there would be priests, but the whole nation would be priests. What does a priest do? 
A priest stands in between. A priest is, is a mediator between God and men, mediating the blessings of God to humanity. And God said, I want this whole nation of you to mediate my blessings to the people on earth so that all people can be set right, so that all things can be set right again. This is my plan. I want to do it through you. How well did they do? How well did they serve the Lord? What's the story of the nation of Israel? By and large, it's not good. It's really a story of failure. Most of their history, they look just like all the nations around them. They don't stand apart. They're not distinct. They're not pointing people to God. They're following. They're not leading. And so what God does is among this nation, this kingdom of priests, he selects individuals to serve him. If you look at uh, the history of this word, Ebed, servant, you'll see that there were many who were called servants. Moses, Joshua, Caleb also, David, all of the prophets, every single one of them in the writings is known as a servant of the Lord, including Isaiah. And their duty is to step into the nation that is following the lead of the nations around them and to point them back to God so that they can serve God and in their service to God, serve all of humanity and bring humanity back to God. So how well did these servants of the Lord do in pointing Israel back? Not very well. There were temporary periods in which people turned back to the Lord, temporary periods of revival, but by and large, the history is one of moving away from God further and further and further away. So bad that eventually God takes the whole nation, this kingdom of priests that look just like all the nations around them and moves them out of his land and puts them in all of these nations around them. And when we encounter the book of Isaiah, this, these final chapters, that's where the people are. They're in exile. God's chosen servants who are called to set all things right need fixing themselves. They themselves are broken. So how can they, who need fixing, set all things right? What's God going to do? What's his plan? Well, his plan is this. He's going to raise up another servant, okay? a perfect servant, an ideal servant. And that's what God talks about in the latter half Of the book of Isaiah. I want you to turn with me to chapter 49 and verse 1. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb and from the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Now this sounds again like the nation of Israel, doesn't it? Uh, In fact, if you talk to most Jews who who today read their Bibles, they will say, that's us. That's the nation of Israel. It's our calling to elevate all of humanity. We're not doing it very well right now, but that's our calling. That's Israel. That's the nation. But if you read on chapter 49, verse 5, you see that it's, it's not actually the nation, but it's someone from, someone from within the nation. Verse 5, now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. In other words, this is someone from within the nation. He is called Israel because he is the ideal Israelite. And for the next few weeks, what we're going to be looking at is this ideal Israelite. There are four servant songs 
In the latter half of the book of Isaiah, there's one in chapter 42 and one in chapter 49. We're going to look at both of those this morning because they kind of parallel one another. Chapter 50, there's another one, and then chapters 52 through 53, probably the most famous one that talks about the suffering servant. Well, all of these talk about God's ideal Israelite, the perfect servant who will serve the servants so that all people might serve God. It's clouded in mystery in the book of Isaiah. It's it's mysterious because he seems to be suffering and he seems to be triumphant and it would have been nearly impossible in their day to, to pull those visions apart. But we know who this is, don't we? We know that it's Jesus Christ. Book of Matthew in particular portrays this this beautiful portrait of Jesus as this ideal Israelite and it's constantly making analogies back to the experience of Israel and applying them to Jesus Christ because he is the ideal. If you remember at Jesus Christ's baptism, he goes down under the water and he comes up and when he comes up out of the water, the spirit descends upon him like a dove. God speaks out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is a direct allusion to Isaiah chapter 42. The spirit descends upon him and empowers him throughout Isaiah 40 through 66. The spirit is empowering God's ideal servant. The spirit descended like a dove to point out Jesus as God's ideal servant. God spoke from heaven and said, this is the one. Remember I spoke about him back in Isaiah. They should have known immediately. He's the one. Then a few chapters later in Luke chapter four, Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 61 about the role of the servant and what the servant will do establishing justice. And Jesus says, that is me. He stands up and says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the servant. I'm the one. So if we really want to understand the ministry of Jesus Christ, we've got to go all the way back into Isaiah because Isaiah is the first one who helps us really clarify what will this servant do. So I want you to turn back with me to chapter 42 and verse 1. Isaiah 42 In verse 1, the Lord speaks, he says, behold, we say that word means pay attention, listen up, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations, he will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. The role of the servant is this, to fix everything. The role of the servant is huge. It's to put all things right. You may have noticed as we read those verses, four verses, three times one word occurs and that is the word justice. Hebrew, it's the word uh, mishpat, justice. It is an enormously significant word, particularly in the prophets. Isaiah alone uses that word 57 times. That word or related word, 57 times. Mishpat, justice. Now, if you remember our discussion when we were going through 1 Peter of righteousness, this will help you understand what the word means. Uh, Righteousness meant a, a standard, right? A ruler defines for us what is straight or what is an inch or a foot or a yard or a meter. It's a standard. Plumb line tells us this is what vertical is. It's a, it's a standard. Right? That's what righteousness is. Conformity to a standard is righteousness. 
It can apply to normal events in life. It can apply to spiritual things. It can apply to legal things. It just means conformity to a standard. Justice means the implementation of the standard. It's the implementation of the standard. That's what justice is. It is setting things to right. So when people show up in a court of law, uh, they didn't have, in a sense, criminal courts. Every case was a, a civil matter, in a sense. In other words, there wasn't the state of Israel against. It was two parties show up and one party complains and says, uh, you know, Rick Larson stole my cow and, and I want my cow back. And, and I've got to prove that Rick has stolen my cow. A, a just judge is going to apply a righteous standard and I'm going to get my rights. It'll be justice. Things are set right, right? Rick has to give me back my cow and maybe give me four cows as well for all of the mental distress that I have for losing my cow. I want justice, Okay. That is the application of the right standard or setting things right, putting things right again. And when it comes to the work of God's chosen servant, it means setting everything right because everything is broken in the world to a greater or lesser degree. So the servant begins first by setting people right with God. This is the the first and foremost of his assignments. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7 reads like this. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold a cry of distress. God's people, who were supposed to be the ones to serve him and set all things right, have no rightness amongst them. The servants themselves need to be set right. And so the servant goes about accomplishing the business of putting God's people right again with God. Look with me in chapter 49 and verse 5. Now says the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the one who is always faithful and does what is right, the one who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to do this, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him to put the nation back in right relationship with God. And how will he do that? Well, if you look at this latter half of Isaiah, there's beautiful imagery of the nation of Israel undergoing a new exodus, a better exodus, a more important exodus. They're not just going to be taken uh, out of the nation of Babylon and back to Israel. They're going to be taken out of the dungeons of blindness and spiritual death. So when Isaiah speaks of those who are prisoners, he's not talking about hardened criminals who deserve punishment getting out of jail. He's talking about the people of Israel who become imprisoned because of their own sin and now they live in darkness and they need light and God's servant is going to lead them in a new exodus. He's going to take them again through the wilderness and bring them back into right relationship with God. And you recall that when God first did that and he brought his people out of slavery, into a relationship with him, he gave them a covenant. Well, the servant's going to give them a new covenant, a better covenant. Read with me chapter 49, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In a favorable time I have answered you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you, speaking of the servant, for a covenant of the people. To restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages, saying to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. He says to the servant, uh, not simply will you give them 
a new and better covenant, you will be a covenant, which this language must have been really confusing to them a bit. The servant's going to be a covenant. How can a person be a covenant? Well, we know from the ministry of Christ, when he shed his blood, he said, this blood is the blood of the new covenant. I, I am the new covenant. I am the way for you to be restored and put right with God so that you can once again fulfill your role. And so a fundamental component of this new covenant will be the removal of the barrier of sin that sin has caused. Turn with me to chapter 44 and verse 22. The Lord says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me for I have purchased you for myself. Remember the old covenant imagery is that of atonement. The blood is spread over the mercy seat and it's spread year after year after year. Once a year, the priest goes in, spreads the blood, but he has to keep going in and doing it again and again because it's just the blood of a bull. It's not a perpetual sacrifice. It's not a lasting sacrifice. It has to be made over and over and over again. Writer of the book of Hebrews talks about this at length. Jesus Christ enters into the Holy of Holies, the very throne room of God, offers his own blood, and God says that blood is adequate for all sins for all times. So I will not simply wipe over or cover over your sins temporarily, but I'm going to remove them permanently. Okay? That is the beauty of the gospel message. The moment you believe, sins are removed entirely and completely and forever. And the wonderful news is it wasn't just for Israel, but it was for all nations. And that was God's original plan to do it through Israel for all nations. So a perfect Israelite, Jesus comes, makes a sacrifice that's a permanent sacrifice, a perpetual sacrifice to remove all sins for all times for all peoples. Turn back with me to chapter 49 again in verse 6. The Lord speaking again and he says to the servant, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. That is God's original plan. It wasn't just for Israel, but it was through Israel for all peoples. It's the beauty of the gospel message. If you are here this morning and you have never said, God, thank you, I believe that Jesus Christ is the servant who removes my sin. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, black or white, Yellow, red, it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what nation you come from. It doesn't matter what gender you are, how old you are. Christ died for you. Okay, Christ died for you. And all that you have to do is say, God, I believe in that sacrifice. And when you do, the debt of your sin is not just covered over temporarily. It's permanently and completely removed so that you can have right relationship with God. Right forever. Wow. Okay, that is the gospel message. That is the message of the servant. That is the first thing that the servant came to accomplish. To set people right with God. But that's not the end of his ministry. Second, to set people right with one another. Because our relationship with God has been broken, our relationships with one another don't work perfectly. Even in the best of circumstances, as we alluded to a couple of weeks ago, Adam and Eve, when they sin, immediately enter into conflict with one another. Their children are in conflict with one another, and they don't just take one another's toys. Cain kills Abel. 
There's conflict between one man and another man, between a man and woman, between a husband and a wife. But when God's servant returns, there will be peace. Okay? That is the removal of conflict in the presence of blessing. I'll take you all the way back to chapter 2 of Isaiah. Verse 4, it says this. And he, the servant, will judge between the nations. He will render just decisions, right decisions for many people. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. There will be peace on earth. What's interesting is uh, my son and I have been studying martial arts. We've been learning some weapons and they always tell you the history of the weapons. And uh, every weapon that was used originally in martial arts was used for something else. Normally it was a farm implement or it was for washing laundry. Okay, those are most, most weapons you see in martial arts are for farming or washing. In other words, everyone who was involved in fighting, the men and the women, everyone had to have a weapon in hand at all times because that was life. Okay, life was characterized by conflict and warfare. This week I found an illustration. This comes from 1992. And so 20 years ago, a group of historians compiled the following information. Since 3600 BC, the world has known only 292 years of peace. During this period, there have been 14,351 wars, large and small, in which 3.64 billion people have been killed. Since 650 BC, there have also been 1,656 arms races, only 16 of which have not ended in war. The remainder ended in the economic collapse of the countries involved. That was just written 20 years ago, and we haven't had peace on earth at all for the last 20 years. We haven't had another year of peace on earth. It's just conflict after conflict after conflict after conflict. Immanuel Kant once wrote, perpetual peace is no empty idea, but a practical thing which through its gradual solution, is coming always nearer to its final realization. He was absolutely wrong. It's not perpetual peace, but perpetual conflict is the story of humanity. Now, in 1904, Chile and Argentina were in a conflict with one another. It was a border dispute. And things were really escalating. Finally, they were able to work things out. They were able to cause things to de-escalate, settle the border dispute. They didn't go to war. And to commemorate the fact that they had accomplished peace between them, they put up a statue. This is called Christ of the Andes. And they mounted Christ of the Andes right on the border between Chile and Argentina. The only problem is when they first set up the statue, somebody noticed that the back of the statue was to Chile and the front of the statue was facing Argentina. And so there were immediately demonstrations and disputes and conflicts were arising amongst the people. And apparently a journalist stepped up and he said, you know, it's okay. He was Chilean. He said, it's okay because the people of Argentina need God to watch over them more than we do. And things settled down a bit. But the symbol of their peace, their resolution, almost started a new conflict. Okay, that is the story of humanity. Can you imagine a day and age when there is not conflict among people? When we as parents don't have to figure out how do we keep our kids from fighting all the time with one another and loving one another instead? Wow, that is the vision that Jesus Christ promises. When the servant returns, there will be peace. Perfect peace. An end to warfare. 
There will be, it says in chapter 9, perpetual peace under the reign of the servant. His dominion will be vast. That is, it will stretch over all of humanity. He will bring immeasurable prosperity, shalom, blessing. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice, that is, rightness and righteousness, conformity to the standard. From this time forward and forevermore, the Lord's intense devotion or his zeal for his people will accomplish this. There will be perpetual peace under the reign of God's servant. There will no longer even be any crime. For the extortioner has come to an end. Destruction has ceased. Oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. No war, no conflict, no crime. Peace with one another. Peace for all peoples, for all time, everywhere on the earth. God will set us not only right with him, but right with one another. Third, through God's servant, he will put things right with all of creation. Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve sin, it says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. God's speaking to Adam. He says, Adam, you represent all of mankind. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you. Adam, you're going to be in conflict, not just with your wife and your kids aren't just going to have fights, but you're going to have a fight with the land. You're going to plant grapes and you're going to get thorns. They're going to cut you and frustrate you and you're going to come home tired and grumpy at night and you're going to have conflict in your home. You're going to have a fight with your wife and your kids are going to be fighting over here and you want to just leave the tent. Go read the Babylonian Times. (laughs) Just conflict, frustration, fighting, even with creation. It's going to be scarcity. It's not going to yield what you need it to yield. This week I was reading the, the cover story of National Geographic. January 2011 edition was about uh, the population explosion. According to the article, Earth is going to reach uh, 7 billion human inhabitants this year. It's 7 billion. 9 billion by 2045. And a lot of uh, scientists are raising the alarm. They're saying, you know what? Earth can't sustain that many people. There's going to be scarcity. There's going to be mass starvation. The author offered this opinion. He said, with the population still growing by about 80 million each year, it's hard not to be alarmed. Right now on earth, water tables are falling, soil is eroding, glaciers are melting, fish stocks are vanishing. Close to a billion people go hungry each day. You may not agree with all of his opinions, but what I thought was very interesting was that almost a billion people are hungry every day. A billion people go to bed hungry every day. Every once in a while, my kids will now uh, say before mealtime, they'll go, Dad, I'm starving. I say, no, you're not. You're not starving. You may think I'm kind of legalistic or whatever, but I I tell them, I hammer on this issue. I say, no, you're not. You're not starving. Let's talk about starving for a minute. And, you know, like I said, I may be a little hard on this issue, whatever, but I want my kids to be a little bit sensitive to the fact that there are people starving in the world. And so I don't let them say in my house, I'm starving. So the other day, my son said, I'm starving, Dad. He goes, well, I'm not starving, but I am hungry. I said, that's right. <laughs> You're hungry. And we can do something about it in this house, but there are a lot of houses that can't. And we want to be sensitive to that. UNICEF reports that there are almost a billion people who don't have clean water. It's probably the same group that's hungry. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough water. We don't live in that 
most of us personally, and so we forget about the fact that people are really struggling and suffering. Why? Because the earth doesn't just abundantly yield its produce. It just doesn't sprout forth. But that's not how God originally designed it. There was a day and there will be a day when the earth will just yield its produce without conflict. Look to me, chapter 49, verse 9, second half of verse 9. says, along the roads they will feed. The roads are not typically the, the fertile areas. It's not where you go to lift your crop. It says, along the roads they will feed, and their pasture will be on all the bare heights, the tops of the mountains that are bare. Nothing's growing there. Well, actually, that's where pasture land will be. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or the sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. There will be an abundance for everyone. God's servant came 2,000 years ago, and we are, we're still waiting, aren't we? We're still waiting. It is uh, apparent that um, only the first of these, it seems, has started to happen. Maybe a little bit for some of us, conflicts being resolved with one another. But we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. And I, I know, you know with our, our, our kids, a lot of times if there's a surprise we want to give to them, we don't tell them until about a day before, maybe a couple hours before, because they can't wait. And it just frustrates them to wait. If I was a Jew and I heard this, I would say, okay, God, how about now? Come, send the servant now. It's hard to wait, isn't it? It's hard to wait for God to set all things right in our lives. I don't know, maybe you're waiting today for God to set something right. Set something right in your, in your financial house or set something right in your physical house, in your, your well-being or set something right in a relationship with a friend or a family member. Things are broken and you're saying, God, how about now? Come now. As the early church said, uh, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. Set things right. Have you ever wondered, God, why do we have to wait for you to put everything right? The book of Isaiah tells us, it's wrapped up in this, this mystery of God's plan. The God's servant would come first and he would suffer. We're going to talk about that next week as we prepare our hearts for Easter and resurrection. We're going to talk about the fact that God had a really mysterious plan. Maybe not a plan that we would want. We'd like God to just do it. God said it right, right now. Because we don't like to wait. But instead God said, no, first I'm going to do this. I'm going to send my son. And he's going to suffer first. And in his suffering, he's going to provide a way for all people to be reconciled to me. He's going to come. It's going to be really mysterious in his suffering. A suffering servant is not going to be what the Jewish people want, so they're going to reject him. But God will ultimately vindicate him, and we'll talk about that. But right now, we have to wait. We wait for God to vindicate. But someday he will. We know he will. And he'll send a servant back. And when he sends a servant back, all things will be put right and then all the world will praise. That's God's plan. Look how Isaiah wraps it up here. Chapter, let's look at chapter 42, verse 10. Read this as we close things up ourselves this morning. Chapter 42, verse 10, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song. It's a new day. It's a new exodus. It's a new covenant. He says, sing a new song then. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and those who dwell on them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements of Kedar 
and their inhabitants. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Why? Because he set everything right. He set everything right. But now as God's people, we wait. And my question for you this morning is simply this. What are you doing while you're waiting? It's an amazing thing that God has called us just like Christ to be his servants. And we have to choose. We can serve ourselves and our own lusts and desires and sin and death. Or we can serve God's servant who will set all things right and share in his honor and glory. But we have to choose. The amazing thing is God has called each and every one of us. Every person sitting out there, God has called to be his servant. It's the highest calling you can have. Greater, greatest title that you can have. Servant of the Lord. Follow the example of Christ. You can't set everything right in the world. We can't solve all issues of poverty and, and hunger and bad water and disasters. We can't solve all those things, but we can do something, can't we? And, and as we are working slowly following the example of Christ to set things right, we can point people to Jesus Christ, constantly point them to Jesus Christ, to the one who can make them right. My question for you this morning is simply this. As you are waiting, are you becoming frustrated with the Lord? Are you turning to him and saying, God, thank you for calling me to be your servant. Let me enter into the work of Christ in setting things right, in particular, having boldness and courage to point people to your servant, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for for hope. I thank you for the vision that we have, that your son will put all things right. But as we live in this world that is, is broken and is dark in so many respects, I pray, Lord, that we would not lose hope, we would not lose that vision, but that we would labor as your servants in, in the power of Jesus Christ, following the example of Jesus Christ, and pointing people to Jesus Christ, your servant, your son. Father, thank you for this, this fresh vision of you and your work in the world. And I pray, Lord, as we go out, that we would be a blessing to all. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you and keep you. Have a great week.